On this episode of Pilot's Discretion, we're joined by Don Wyckoff, an experienced Air Force and airline pilot. He tells us about losing the engine in an F-16, hand-flying Category 3 approaches, and transitioning from Boeing's to Bonanza's. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. Remember to visit sporties.com slash podcast for show links and complete archives. And if you like Pilot's Discretion, please subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. Today, I am joined in the studio by Don Wyckoff, a pilot who has come full circle in his aviation career. He started out working for Sporties as a high school student in the 1970s then went on to a long and distinguished career in the U.S. Air Force, where he was an instructor pilot and mission commander, primarily flying the F-16. He then flew for Delta Airlines for over 30 years, during which time he served as the president of the International Federation of Airline Pilots Associations. Now he is back at Sporties as a corporate pilot, and he also owns a Bonanza. Don, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Thanks for having me, John. Good to be here. You've flown in a wide range of environments in your career, GA, military, a lot in between. So it's tempting to talk about the differences between those, and we'll dive into each of those. But I wanted to start with what doesn't change when you change airplanes. So what are some common lessons you've learned across all these chapters in your aviation career? Well, I think start to finish to today, to tomorrow if we go out flying or something along those lines. Uh, the one common theme is, um, I, I guess I could give you one word and call it professionalism. And if I break that down a little further, what that would really mean is um, you take what you're doing seriously. You can still have a lot of fun, but still be serious about what you're doing. Uh, be prepared. Make sure you're well-trained. Make sure your equipment's ready to go. And make sure you're ready to go. And then you put all those things together. You can go out and you can be very professional, but you can have the absolute time of your life going out for that $100 hamburger on a nice fall day and uh, enjoy everything. So if there was a common theme from starting off as a private pilot, going through the Air Force pilot training instructor, et cetera, as you previously talked about, uh, the number one thing is just um, making sure you're ready, making sure you're well-trained, you're current, et cetera. That's a hard agree for me. Couldn't agree more with that. I think a lot of GA pilots think professionalism means you get paid to fly or you wear stripes on your shoulder, and it doesn't mean that. I also love what you say there about professionalism doesn't mean it's not fun. Right. Uh, a lot of times people view that as those things are at odds with each other and they're not. Um, how about some habits? Any habits or mindsets uh, that you translate from one to the other that seem to be consistent? So that's, I think there's a common theme across all of them. Everybody in the, uh, in the flying business hears about it, but uh, it's checklist. It doesn't matter whether you're um, a new student in T-37 or let's back it up further, a new student in a Cessna 172 is a as a 16 or 17 year old kid, you're gonna learn how to do, you use a checklist, when to use it, how to use it. And that is probably a very common theme across everything. And if I take that a little bit further and just kind of add a little bit of the airline end of it, we've really moved into more, a checklist makes you think that this is a to-do list. It's a checklist and there's difference. You're gonna run the flow of your airplane and then you're gonna make sure you check it. And that applies whether you're flying by yourself you're flying with your buddy for the hamburger, or you're flying, you know, 300 people to Europe. 
I think that's a great idea that maybe not enough GA pilots are taught these days, the difference between a do list and a checklist Absolutely. and using flows and backing it up. So that's a great point. Let's talk about your time in the Air Force. Uh, military pilots move into very high-performance airplanes, sometimes with only one seat, very early on compared to GA. About the time a GA pilot might be working on a commercial certificate, you can be going supersonic as an Air Force pilot. Yeah. How do they do that? What training procedures enable that? What should we learn from that overall when it comes to flight training? Well, I think, and I've seen a difference in flight training, say, from when I got my private pilot's license in, uh, in 1974 uh, to today when I see what you're doing at the academy at Sporties, for example. Things that are done at Sporties are much more like what we did at pilot training, and I think those are the important pieces. Uh, and I would say the initial elements, how do we take someone from you know, zero to hero? That what we do is we uh, have a very specific syllabus, and we grade every element of the flight. And there's standards that have to be met or you don't move to the next flight. And um, maybe unlike a lot of other places, um, not everybody graduates. You know, we, we started with 60-some-odd. My class, we graduated 48. So if you're not – it comes fast. And when it, you get on the slippery slope, it gets real slick fast unless you can figure out a way to get off of it. So I would say that that is what gets you to that spot. Then the other thing is, is a lot of folks, it, it's just the way it works. Take a while to get a license. It could be time, you know, you've got a life, you've got kids, you've got a job. You've got to keep refilling up the checking account so you can go do it. It's not a cheap sport, right? When you go in, it's, it's like a total immersion language course. You're going to go in on day one, and that is all you're going to do. For that one year while you were pilot training, the time that I was there, all you did was eat, sleep, and drink that syllabus, the flights you were doing, and going to get your wings. So if there's any distractions, you brought them upon yourself. They eliminate all of them for you. That is a great lesson, though, I think, for GA pilots that maybe we can't go full immersion like you would in the Air Force, but you can do as much of that as you can. I often tell people that when they're thinking about learning to fly, that don't start until you can really commit to it, both financially and time, because there's nothing more inefficient than trying to train once every couple of weeks. I've, I've often told my story that I learned to fly in high school. I, I tried to do it that way and it ended up taking me almost two years to get my private license. I learned, I got my instrument rating a year or so later, and I did it in about six weeks because I went all in. And it's just dramatic, the difference that makes that if you can really commit as much as possible, fly three times a week, study when you're not flying, fly a sim when you're not flying, that can have a tremendous payoff. There's an element that even applies that I do today. I get uncomfortable if I get to 10 days and I haven't flown my airplane. Part of it is I want to fly the airplane. Airplanes love to be flown and mm -hmm. they don't break when you fly them. But the other side of it is, is um, I stay, I have continuity. I main proficiency, you know, have a little bit. If I'm going for a hundred dollar hamburger, there's a little something training-wise I'll do on the way. It might be really small, but I'm going to do it. Let's talk about a time when that training paid off. You've told me before about losing an engine in F-16, which is probably not an everyday thing. So tell us about that story and how you're prepared for that. was out about ready to start a low level, and um, which we did a lot in the airplane. And as I got kind of started down the, um, the VR route in the stateside here, uh, the engines just started surging. And needless to say, we... When you're riding with one motor, and I'd still do this today with the Bonanza, you're always looking for where you're going to go and what you're going to do. And for the single-engine drivers out there, I highly encourage you to do that. I'm probably a little more prone to it based on this. Start surging. Soon something goes wrong with the engine. 
you don't stay low anymore. Altitude's your friend. So I just started zooming, trying to use whatever engine I could get to get up as high as I could and pointed where I, the, the next best place to go, right on the nose and as high as I could. I wasn't talking to anybody and I went up into the 20s and I still didn't talk to anybody because Marconi had nothing to do with this flight right now. <laughs> <laughs> so there wasn't anybody to talk to to get any help from. I just needed to put an airplane on the ground. We used to practice what we called SFO, simulated flame out approaches all the time. Normally we'd come in on an overhead about 7,000 feet over the runway and do a 360 with the power off, a little speed brake to kind of uh, simulate a, a dead engine. And this, but we did practice on occasion, a little harder to do, a straight in, which basically was when the end of the runway came underneath the nose, you got it, you're gonna make it. So it went up there. I had a little extra smash once I got up in the 20s uh, over the, uh, the speed we normally did that. And then it said, well, you know, I got you here. Good luck, we're all counting on you. <laughs> it's, and then it, that's where it quit. So fortunately for me, you know, if had it gone a little earlier on the low level, we'd be talking about the ejection sequence instead of a flame-out approach, but was fortunate to do that. So the real, back to the punchline, as you said, the real key is we practice them all the time. Um, and we, and we, seriously, we did them all the time. It wasn't just a, a quarterly deal. If we went out on every second or third, if it was a beautiful day while you're maybe beating the pattern up a little bit, you would pull up to, to the high key and practice one because it could be a lifesaver. That's a great example, like you said, on a $100 hamburger flight for a GA pilot, power off 180, underrated maneuver, easy to do. Every third pattern you fly, try to do a power off 180 and see how well you do. That is something that really needs to stay sharp. You can't just learn it once and it's like riding a bike. I think that's, I find I'm constantly having to relearn how to do that, adjust for the wind, yep. adjust for the terrain. So that's a, that's a great lesson in practice. I fly virtually all my if no one's in the pattern in the bananas, I fly very close to a one power off one I'll admit it's a little bit closer to what we did in the military. The other thing I would do is if the home drone doesn't have any traffic whatsoever, come in towards the field a little bit higher, four or five miles out, you know, because we always do, you're with an instructor or something that pulls the power, where would you go? Well, take it to fruition. It just quit right here. Could you make it? There's a strip, see what you can do. You always have an out, you throw the power up and go, okay, did that work or did it not work? And it could be a real lifesaver for you one day too. Great lesson. Let's move to the airline world where you spent a lot of time. What was the biggest adjustment for a military pilot moving to the airlines? That's a, a common track, especially maybe 20, 25 years ago. Uh, you've had great training, you've had great experience flying turbine equipment, but in a different environment. So what was the, what was the hardest part of that transition? Well, for me, it was... Uh, um, probably twofold. First is coming out of a single seat airplane, um, getting used to having a crew that was in the same confines as you. Everybody always used to say, well, you never did any crew concept. And I go, well, actually we did. It's just that my crew member was a mile over there and two more, two miles behind me. And we had a way we did it. So relearning that with someone that's in, in the cockpit with you. So there was an element of that. The other is, is it doesn't matter where you come from, how experienced you are. Um, when you get there, everything is new the way that airline works on the ramp the way they work uh, their checklist the way they do their training so everybody regardless of your experience is a new guy what you have behind you a little bit is just a little bit more experience to rely on lean on a little bit while you absorb the rest and uh, so I, I think that if anybody's making that route um, regardless of where you've come from 
Uh, you'll have your moments of humility. <laughs> Everybody does. And uh, you will see how things are done, how you work as a crew, when's the right time to speak up when you're the new guy, and um, and be ready to uh, – don't be too uh, thin-skinned either because you'll probably take a couple shots to the said, uh, side as well. So, How about from a training standpoint? A lot of, lot of new airline pilots right now hold really generational changeover coming mm-hmm. right out of the airlines – uh, you talked about there some of the kind of cultural and getting your, your feet under you, but how about from a training standpoint, what should new airline pilots be focusing on or thinking about when it comes to training and getting ready for the flying part of the job? What you'll find primarily is that the training pipeline, the, the timeline, I should say, is very compressed. They want you in, they want you out producing income. That's your job, Right. So when you get in there and you're into a new airplane with new technology, new systems, new environment that you're working in, um, they are really spotlighting on that hard. And it's easy because you're in a simulator and you start off in back and, and actually learning a lot of that in a fixed simulator, no motion or anything. So your habit pattern becomes, oh, we barely get this thing off the ground, put the autopilot on, and now we start working this stuff proficiency, proficiency. It's all very important. But what it does is it's real easy to let that creep to the back of your mind that I guess I don't have to grab this yoke and fly anymore. And it's very much the opposite. Most airline training programs have gotten back to go, we want you to do some more hand flying. It's not just take off, put it on, click it off and land. Uh, And there's plenty of folks that don't do it that way. But it can be easy to migrate that way um, based on some of the way you were trained, and then, um, and sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's not, so that'll play into it a little bit. But you still have some perishable skills of flying an airplane that can't not be left behind. You did a lot of work during your airline career on the updated crew rest rules that came out a while back. Very complicated subject, but very important subject. Really, one of the more overlooked changes, I think, by the general aviation public of, of what happened there. So without going into all the details of what that rule is, what are some high-level lessons or principles you took from that, in particular, that might apply to GA pilots when we think about fatigue, rest, taking care of yourself as a pilot? Well, there's a, there's a couple, and it's really easy to do. You go, it's a beautiful day. I want to go wherever. I want to go out west from here in Ohio, say. And it's beautiful the whole way. But, you know, it's going to take me about eight hours to do this, grinding along with a headset on so on. Perfectly legal doesn't mean it's perfectly right. So kind of evaluating, did you get a great night's sleep? What time are you starting? Things along those lines. And that's probably concept number one, that sometime you need to just go, you know what? I think we're going to stop here and spend a night. And we'll get a rest. We'll get something, have a nice dinner and go out tomorrow. But it's still going to be good. We're going to make it type thing. Uh, so that's number one kind of in that duty day, if you will. Mm-hmm. Probably one concept I'll leave for everybody, because this is the way I used to explain to a lot of folks. When you've had a reduction in your sleep, when your sleep has been constricted, there's only one thing on the planet that'll fix that, sleep. (laughs) So when you've had a long day and you've got another demanding thing in front of you, for for example, whether it's flying work or whatever, you're not going to be any good the next day unless you get your sleep. You just have to, you got to do it. And sometimes, particularly if you've traveled multiple time zones, it can get difficult. It can be work. So I found in the, the latter part of my career that flying to Europe, back and forth to Europe, I had to work on, there was like, you know, 
I want to go out and do things on my layover, have a nice dinner with the crew, but I got to go back and I got to work on my sleep. Other people doesn't take as much for me. It took a little bit more. So it's very, very individual, but just have the, you know, the concepts that, um, the sleep is the number one thing. It drives everything. Um, if you get way behind, not only you're not performing well, you can have some health issues, which is important for all of us. And the next thing is, is sometimes it's just hard to say, oh, you know what, I think we can make it that little bit further. And the problem with that is, is you're airborne when your battery runs out. And now what are you going to do? Particularly, and guess what will probably be happening then? Weather, airplane problem, some other stressor on you that would really be handled a little bit better if, if you were charged the whole way. That's such a great way to think about it, of working on your sleep. So often we talk about work or work is what you do and sleep is what you fit in when you have time, which yeah. of course means you never have enough time. But yeah. I love that concept of being very intentional about working on your sleep. I'm done working on work or I'm done working on flying. I need, now need to go to work on sleep, which sounds lazy, but I think we've discovered, especially maybe in the last 10 years, just how underrated sleep is. It's it's kind of a the miracle drug that we all take for granted. Absolutely. So, great advice. Don, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to talk about another transition, this time airline to GA. Great. Earn all your pilot ratings and keep your flying skills sharp with Sporty's Pilot Training Plus. This all-inclusive membership unlocks Sporty's complete library of award-winning video courses so you can learn anywhere you have your phone, tablet, or laptop. For one annual fee, you get access to over $1,500 in courses, a smart investment in your flying career. Plus, enjoy free shipping every day of the year at sporties.com and apply for one of our three annual flight training scholarships. Learn more at sporties.com slash pilot training. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We are back with Don Wyckoff. Don, we talked about going from military to airline, and I want to now talk about the other side of your career, which is the airline to GA transition, something that I think is overlooked. A lot of airline pilots do this route. They retire and they start flying piston airplanes for the first time, maybe ever, but at least in decades for a lot of people. And it's easy to overlook that transition. I've got 15,000 hours. I've flown all over the world. What could I possibly have to learn about flying a Cessna or Bonanza? And I think you would say there's a lot to learn. I would definitely agree with that. You know, falling right into that, it had been quite a while, a little, little bit of GA flying sprinkled in in a few spots. So, um, you know, our, our story of going to GA was um, kids that were in the military and elsewhere out west and, um, and everybody on here that flies in the GA world will love this story. Um, we were having dinner at the uh, beginning of the COVID experience, had just visited our kids out in Wichita Falls at Shepard Air Force Base. And it's about a 15, 16 hour car ride. It's in an overnight stay and so on and so forth. And we're ready to go back out and see them again. There's nothing, not much else going on, right? So we're having dinner, pull a couple burgers off the grill, sit down with my wife and we're talking about getting back out. And she goes, oh man, I drive is awful. And then she looked right in my baby blues and said, what about an airplane? And I don't know about anybody else that's listening here. You pipe up pretty quick and go, yes, dear, what about an airplane? Let's talk about that. And so we did. We started looking into that. You know, that was that was what we wanted to do in retirement. This is the way we wanted to get around, see friends, family, and so on, and do some traveling. So 
that started the process. Now, to your point originally, John, is some getting at the end of my career. I've got a couple years to go at this point. And um, you have this piece of paper in your wallet that says you can do all this legally. The insurance companies may have something to say along the route um, or the owner of an airplane. But you have this piece of paper, and it's real easy to think, I've been doing this forever. What are you going to tell me? What are you going to teach me? And the answer is a lot. So when I started on the path into aircraft purchase, you know, I just started asking a lot of questions. Always reminds me of a funny story. You know, your fifth grade, you look over a piece of paper and cheat off of it. It's called cheating and get in trouble. When you're 66 years old and you look over it, it's called benchmarking. So <laughs> I started benchmarking everything to go figure out with my friends what their mistakes were. So that was the first thing. You know, you swallow your pride and your ego a little bit. What'd you do wrong? What'd you do right? How'd you do it? Learned a lot of lessons about, you know, we could do a whole podcast on purchasing an airplane, but went through all that. Well, that still doesn't get me into the next thing. So I go, everything I want to do in this airplane, I need to do from the habit patterns that I've built over the last almost 40 years. So I started thinking about how I was going to do that. Well, what's the very first thing is, is yeah, I can go buy this airplane and do that, but I'm going to be hauling my wife and family around in this. I want to get not just checked out. I want to get qualified in this thing. I want to know how to use it. So I started a process in there and make sure I would really checked out in the airplane. I bought it in Georgia before I brought it home. And I wasn't going to fly home by myself without having a little, uh, a little duel. Back to the old duel. How do I approach avionics, power off 180s, all the goods, all the stuff, stalls, falls, everything that we're supposed to do and get proficient. And what I would say is, is even having run through that basic deal, that got me about proficient enough to get home. And then I just kept layering it on from there. And there's so many good places to go learn, you know, different aircraft groups, uh, different things you can read. Nice little airport, other Bonanza owners start picking their brains. But the real lesson learned out of the whole deal was try to have a flow of what you've been doing before. So for the airline captains out there thinking about buying an airplane or even just moving into some GA, get some with someone that's very knowledgeable. And here's the other thing. When you sit down with... A young instructor, the first thing I said is, is you know everything about this, and I know a little bit about this, so make no assumptions on anything. I want you to work me over so that I can get to the right spot anywhere we've done any of that. And then lastly, the thing that I have been um, kind of amazed at is you can buy all these different checklists for your airplanes, and they all get all the pieces, but they're all different. And I go, I don't like any of this. So I have a, it's an airline habit. I have a flow for my cockpit check. And once I established what I thought would be right for that, I rewrote my checklist. And then I had it in the same format that I had been using for 34 years at the airline. And I fold it the same way and it sits in the same spot in the cockpit. So there's a transfer of habits all the way through that for, I have found then when something goes a little crazy, all of a sudden, I'm back into a habit pattern I've been used to doing. Excellent advice. There's there's so much to learn there about leaning on your habits and not trying to unlearn 40 years of experience. I think that's true in a lot of things in life. How about the avionics transition? Was anything in particularly easy, difficult there? You'd flown a lot of different avionics to the airlines. Uh, that seems to me to be a key transition piece for some pilots. I'm wondering, coming from an airline background, if that's any different. No, I think you're right. And it kind of depends on what you're doing. So my Bonanza has a, a legacy cockpit, I would say. So I have a GNS 430. 
uh, WAS. I have a multi-function display and kind of the standard King uh, six-pack. Um, so, but there are things to learn. I had never flown that GPS and it's kind of old enough, it's hard to find everything. And quite frankly, YouTube was my friend. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot. And I did all of that before I went down to pick the airplane after the pre-buy, before I got with the instructor. So we wouldn't spend 100 low lead doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, I could just go, he could give me the fine points on it, which is what I wanted. And there were plenty of them to learn. So, and, and even today I find a little Easter egg in there on occasion. In addition to the Bonanza, you're doing some corporate flying in a citation, really yeah. touching all parts of aviation. Now we're checking all the boxes. Exactly. What's the biggest change there? Uh, still turbine flying, maybe somewhat similar to airlines, but no dispatcher, no schedule. So what are, what has been the changes, the, the pluses and minuses there? Yeah, so, you know, it's, a, it's an older citation. And, and uh, not to sound degrading, it's a jet-powered bonanza. It's a straight wing. <laughs> so it's, you know, they call this flotation for a reason, right? Um, it's a good airplane. It's solid. It's fun to fly. Uh, but it is legacy equipment, right? Part of it was that, that part you were talking about, no dispatch and everything. When I bought the bonanza, probably the best piece of information I was given uh, to me by another fellow old fighter guy, an airline guy, he goes, hey, you're thinking about doing this. Here's what you need to know. You've got one thing that you got wired. You're, you're good at captain's authority, pilot command. Good to go. But you're not any good at director of operations, director of maintenance, director of training, or compliance and safety. You've got to go learn all those because the FAA requires you to do them. So go get smart and think in that mindset. Well, that, that helped me transition a little bit to the citation that we're doing our own flight planning. We're doing our own load planning. Very similar uh, along those lines and getting us from point A to point B. Okay, Don, we always end with our ready-to-copy segment, a series of rapid-fire questions on a wide variety of topics. You and I have debated some hot topics over the years, uh, so this should be fun. Are you ready to copy? I'm ready to copy. I've heard you say you hate the Gumps checklist, the famous mental checklist pilots use in the pattern to make sure the pre-landing stuff is done. Why is that? Well, it's primarily, I think that there's a, there's a lot of good with it, but there's a couple things I don't care about it. Uh, and it actually starts with the first one, because I believe that, and I have to back up for why, I've had two times in the Air Force where I was wondering if I was going to have to jump out of an airplane because I got too low on gas, and, got, and it was a bit of a knucklehead. So I'm really conscious about gas. And because of that, the notion of changing a tank as I'm in the pattern is like, you're just asking for your engine to fail right here. It's running. It's good. How much gas are you really going to use? That's a decision that should have been at the top of descent when you're doing your approach and arrival preparation. So thinking that I'm going to start my before landing checklist with where's my gas? Just me. For a lot of folks, if they're used to that, they go, if the G is, I, I did that already, I'm good. Now I'm moving to the rest. Great. You're all, all good. I am spring-loaded to more about, and it's back into the habit patterns. When do I put my gear down? I put my gear down at the same place in a Bonanza that I used to in the F-16 or T-38. It's a beam to numbers. And if the final's way out there, I'm going to drag it down there because that's my habit pattern. And it's kept the gear down when the runway was impacted for all these years. It seemed it's not broken, so I'm going <laughs> to do it, and I'm going to continue to do it. Um, and the rest of them are your kind of your flow and flying. So instead of a gumps, what I do... And, and uh, because I don't have a lot of original thought, I can't remember where I stole this from, but 
the gear down there and, and approach flaps, turn to the base. I run my mixture up there, roll around final flaps. And then when the, when the uh, throttles back a bit, I'll go high RPM then, doesn't get the big whine and neighbors get wound up. That completes, so I have spots where I do those. So those are my trigger points. And then I'll come back and go, do I have them all done? And which is basically the same thing. And they make it nice and easy. They're all different colored things. They're, they're, they're set for pilots, right? So I roll around the final and I, do, I check the gear a lot. I always have. Uh, and um, I'm a red, blue forward and three down in green. <laughs> I'm looking for three colors in the right spot, and that's what I do there. What works for you, that's the key point. Well, that is the key point. And if Gumps is working and it isn't broken, don't fix it. It's just that the very first letter, and it goes back in because I keep reading these safety reports of people not managing their fuel. And um, it's not necessarily an easy one, but it's not a hard one either. Why did you like to hand fly Category 3 approaches at the airline? Well, the only time we did it was on the 737NG, and we had a heads-up display. And it was very, very accurate. And uh, you could fly an approach, and you're over there working your tail off. And, and, um, and you look over at the first officer, and his um, flight director is like it's painted. And you're working around. It was just so incredibly accurate. And they'd make fun of you because you're overworking hard, and it goes, looks like you got a wired boss. But... You had a lot of trend information that was good. You had the same information if you're letting the autopilot fly it. But for me, personally, and it was all just a personal decision, the last little bit of transition to land was just a lot easier and smoother. You were, I felt like I was more in control of the airplane. Right on down, I was looking through the HUD when, the, when we broke out, and um, it was a 50-feet alert height, a decision height instead of alert height. So you had to see something there. And at 50 feet, things will happen quickly that I had all the information. I was up there. I was already hand flying. I didn't have to worry about anything other than just do what I felt I was trained the best at, which was hand, you know, flying an airplane. In general, do you think angle of attack is overrated or underrated for GA pilots? So sometimes I wonder if it's a gizmo because there's a lot of great gizmos in a panel and you can you can put the uh, the Queen's Ransom in the panel if you want to, right? <laughs> and it's some wonderful stuff. But like anything you put into your airplane, particularly in the GA world, my next question is, is what are you doing it for? And have, have you been trained? Are you training yourself? In other words, do you feel confident in the use of it for its intended purpose? And I think there's a lot of good use of, you know, we were trained when we got to the T-38 phase in pilot training that we, we used AOA. We always used it in the fighter business. Uh, you, the Navy does it with all their airplanes because they're predominantly a carrier-based operation, right? And they use, uh, they will fly down final alpha all the time. We did it in the F-16 because anything over, you know, 11, 13 degrees, you increase the probability of a tail strike. So we flew AOA hard. There was a reason for it. And plus you knew where you were from an energy state. Out doing the majority of the stuff in GA, I think there's more gizmo than help. Um, if all you do is use it in a pattern, it could be a really good use. Uh, we have it in a citation. I do use it there because we have different landing speeds based on weight, and you kind of get a little double check. Am I on speed? Crew resource management, important concept, really invented by the airlines, I think, for all practical purposes. What crew resource management concept should a flight instructor know? If I'm a flight instructor working with a different student every couple of hours, are there some CRM things I should think about? Yeah, you know, it, it brings me back to a story um, when I was about to check out 
as an MD-88 captain. And I was flying with the, uh, a guy you used to fly a lot with. And he, he never used the bully pulpit, you're about to be a captain. But every now and again, I would go, hey, what do you think? What do you think? And uh, his number one thing that I think a flight instructor could use is he goes, you know, when you're in the left seat and things are going to hell on a dark, stormy night and you get this really loud talking voice in your right ear, wonderful time to listen. It's, it's your, your teammate saying, giving you some ideas. So I would say for an instructor is, is to kind of go, he is part of your crew because you're training him, you're flying together. Um, not just observe or look for his mistakes per se, but how he's doing some other things. How are you, it's almost some, like some pilot monitoring skills. If I were flying, I'd be doing this, you're doing it mentally. How's he doing? And, and try to get some maybe even nonverbal feedback from that pilot and you, you might find yourself in a position where you could give him a little better instruction. What's the most interesting overnight destination for you as an airline pilot? Interesting or enjoyable? Well, let's do both. Um, I have to, I'll come to enjoyable first because I'm still noodling out interesting a little bit. Um, I really like flying Western Europe. Um, a lot of great cities. I think one of my most enjoyable, I flew a lot at the end when I had seniority, was I really enjoyed Nice, France. It was just old-time Europe, neat old town, not too big, doesn't take a long time to get in like a Paris or a London. It was just really enjoyable to fly in. Um, interesting, I would say probably, and it's, it's interesting from the standpoint of language and things along those lines, when you start rolling into, you know, maybe a Turkey or some places in Asia where it gets interesting because you're going, anybody know what he said? <laughs> I don't know what he said. <laughs> you know, you just keep saying, stay over, stay over, stay over. And then they finally just clear you direct anyway. You, know, if you say it often enough. So anyway, I would say that uh, by and large would have been it. There's kind of some people didn't like it flying into uh, Reagan, landing south on the river visual approach. It's really kind of a yank and bank approach, a lot of fun. And even in the weather, you have an element of that. You make your turn, but see if you got anything before you go missed. And any, any of the approaches, the old visual approaches in LaGuardia were always, you know, you better be on your game because there's always something going on up there. Yeah, if you're not familiar with any of those approaches, listeners, you should get on YouTube. There's some pretty great videos of those. Yeah. What's the most important thing a first officer can do to get off to a good start with a captain? You're just starting a trip together. You sit down in the right seat. What should I do? What I always tried to do, and I'll put it in that framework, is just try to – there's an element of being a chameleon so that you can, okay, I want to be a good supporter of the boss, okay? And at the same time, your charge under, you know, CRM is if you see something that doesn't really look right, you go, hey, boss, what about this? Um, and expecting something like that. Other than that, just do everything the best that you've been trained. Um don't surprise anybody. Try not to surprise anybody. You will, but try not to surprise anybody. And the last one is, we always used to say this with some brand new guys, um, showtime is go time. Don't be late because we're going to leave without you. <laughs> That's great life advice that works outside the airlines, <laughs> exactly. I think. When you ride as a passenger on an airline flight, are you judging the pilot the whole time from seat 12B? No, not, not usually. Can, you know. can you tell if they're airline or if they're military trained or GA trained? I've heard some pilots say that. Oh, I can tell by the way they, 
you know, work the power on final or the way they fly certain procedures, I can tell you were Navy or you were trained in Cessnas. Is there any truth in that? You know, I think in the older days, before autothrottles and things like that, you probably could. You know, with a lot of the automation, it's kind of being done. I would say the only thing I can tell a little bit, and I won't say one way or the other, so not offend anybody, but um, I always used to tell, jokingly say this to, at the start of rotation briefing here, when they're, you know, for their landing, go, hey, it's your brakes and reverser on the rollout till you tell me to come on them. And then I would say, the only turnoff I care about is the last one. In other words, don't jam the brakes on to make the first one because you can make the most perfect landing and the only thing they're going to remember is eating the seat back mm-hmm. with, their, with their front teeth. So you can actually thump it a little bit with a smooth rollout and they're going to go, what a great landing. Mm-hmm. So I can tell a little difference in there and I won't say one way or the other. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about the Bonanza you fly right now? It's the freedom to go when you want to go. So I say that's kind of a GA thing. The Bonanza I find it just to be a spectacular flying airplane. It's it's got a little heft to it, but it's I still think it's fairly nice on the controls. It'll get up and go. It's got good range. It's a nice IFR platform. So uh, you know I would say kind of a combination of that. But more than anything, what I really like about it is get up and go, and uh, when you want to go and where you want to go. All right, I'll give you a softball here. A completely right. non-controversial question. <laughs> Why are Air Force pilots better than Navy pilots? That's a little bit of a tough one here, and I have so many Navy buddies that might listen to this, so I'm just trying to figure out the best dig. <laughs> it probably starts at the recruiting phase overall, but um, <laughs> I would say that. Now, you know, i got a lot of Hornet buddies, and they're really great drivers, but we do ride each other like Seabiscuit. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> All right, Navy listeners, you can go ahead and send in your feedback. We, we, love, the, we love the friendly competition there. Don, our last question is always the same. You have one final flight, and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? Uh, The last flight is in the Bonanza with my bride of 45 years, and we're going to visit grandkids. It's no better than that. Sounds fantastic. Don, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion. Discretion.